The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Good morning and welcome to the Best of the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. I started interviewing authors on the program back in 1994. Didn't even have a name for the show. I just started interviewing authors and after about six months of doing that, my colleague Ann Williams suggested that maybe I should have a name for interviewing authors. And so I thought about it for about two seconds and I thought, how about the Book Nook? That sounds like a catchy name. So we started calling it the Book Nook, and then I was still interviewing authors, but sporadically and at different times during the Excursions music program. And then Anne said, you know, our listeners really like regularity. They like to be able to tune in at a certain time and find what they expect. She said, have you ever thought about having the show on at the same time every day? And I thought, Anne, you're a genius. I never even imagined that there could be such structure and and regularity. And, and that's what we started doing at 2 o'clock on weekday afternoons. If a writer was available, I would interview them. And a half a dozen times during that 10-year period, Elizabeth Berg came out to see me. She was a regular on book tours coming through Dayton to Books and Company. And I watched as her career took off. She had an Oprah book, and that catapulted her to the bestseller lists. And I got to know her very well, and we had a rapport. And back in 2003, I talked to Elizabeth about her novel, Say When, and we talked a lot about relationships. Let's listen now to that interview from 19 years ago on the best of the book nook. Where did you get the, the thought that turned into this book? I actually had a dream about this book, about it being a book. It was, I was in the supermarket in the dream, and they had books for sale, and there was a book called, written by me, called Griffin as Claw, as C-L-A-U-S. And in the book, um, the man, Frank Griffin, takes a job as a Santa, as you know. So um, I thought, okay, I have to write this book about this guy who takes a job part-time job as a Santa. Why does he do that? Well, because his heart is broken. Why is his heart broken? Well, because his wife kind of pulls the rug out from under him. So it's it's a look at divorce as open house was from the woman's point of view. This is from the man's point of view. Different story, but, you know, around the same issue. You've taken the man's point of view. Now, was that difficult for you? It was a challenge, yeah. Um, it was also a very good exercise for me because it made me think about things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought about otherwise. It made me see things in a different way. And I think um, even understand men more than I had before. So I'm glad I did it. And we have three main characters. We have the husband, we have the wife, and we have the young daughter. And a lot of tension throughout the story, a lot of stress. Uh, we've all been touched by divorce. We know someone mm -hmm. who's been divorced. Mm -hmm. We've been divorced. Mm -hmm. um, someone we love and care about has gone through this. 
it's never easy, is it? No, it's really hard, and it rains on the kids. And um, I think even when it's done well, and speaking from experience, too, I, they're always caught in the crossfire. And one of the things I wanted to do in, in this book is have it be a cautionary tale that if people are thinking about divorce and who isn't from time to time, anybody in a relationship thinks sometimes about bailing out, um, this might be a way for someone to live vicariously through someone else considering the same thing and and see some of the things that can happen. and And maybe it will provide some insight for them or make them reconsider or open up some dialogue or, as as one man told me, um, make him think about whether he appreciates his wife enough. Um, same thing from a woman's point of view, whether she's being caring or open enough with her husband. And so often we see marriages that are forged um, very um, suddenly, uh, very accidentally in a way, but divorce so often seems to be just a a one-way road. When people decide to get a divorce, a mm-hmm. lot of times it's just, this mm-hmm. is the decision, mm-hmm. we're not going to change our minds. Mm-hmm. And you have to hurry up and get it done. Yeah. Because it's so painful. The whole process is so painful. But um, I think there can be great value in just slowing down a little. And even if you think... I know it's impossible. I don't want to be with this person. Uh, to just try one more time. Um, if you know, if this book is representational, you just um, there's a lot more to your spouse and yourself, or your partner and yourself, that you more than you may think about, and it's an occasion. Um, if you're thinking about leaving, it's it's really time to open all the doors and lift up all the rugs and have a good look. And even if you're not thinking about a divorce, maybe you should think about your partnership. Maybe you should think mm-hmm. about your companionship. Mm-hmm. And what are you with this person for? What What are the reasons? What are your motivations? What do you get out of it? What does your partner get out of it? Uh, in, in this particular book, we have a, a couple where the fella, I think, kind of is on automatic pilot. I don't think he really thinks about her or her needs particularly. I think he's a, kind of a typical guy that mm-hmm. way. He, he's wrapped up in his own little world and in his work, and uh, he just kind of takes it for granted. Uh, he loves the companionship. He loves his daughter, and he doesn't realize that his wife um, has got some, a lot of issues, like um, self-esteem is a big issue with mm-hmm. her. Right, right. Yeah, he also doesn't like confrontation. He just doesn't want to deal with things. He wants to keep things on a kind of superficial level, and he doesn't want to pay attention to warning signs because that makes him uncomfortable. So it gets really bad before things come out in the open. Mm. This little daughter, she's a magical character. Oh, well, thank you for saying so. She, I liked writing that character. Yeah, she's she's really a wonderful kid. Like so many kids, are, yeah. are so wonderful. 
Yeah. 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 She's and a she's, tomboy. She's a tomboy. Yeah. That was a challenge because I was anything but a tomboy, so I had to use my imagination for that one. And you did some very strenuous research because she's reading a, a book, uh, uh, the autobiography of Bill Veck. Now that that is reaching. That that is really a classic I, baseball book. I know. You know who told me about that? Of yeah, course, I, it's uh, your friend and mine. I have. A, I have a feeling. Mr. Bill Young never let a show go by without us mentioning his name. Yeah. And um, speaking of inspiration, um, how's your dog? My dog is in the car on the way to Madison as we speak with Bill and two authors, Haven Kimmel, who I believe was here as well, and Augustine Burroughs. So they're all in the car having a swell time, and here we are working, Vic. But we enjoy what we do. <laughs> we do enjoy what now, we do. It's Toblance Ripken. What's the middle name of your dog? Floyd. Toblance Floyd Ripken. That's right. Yeah. He was Toby until Bill got a hold of him. Okay. I know you love your dog. I love my dog. In fact, your dog is in your publicity photo. He is. Mm -hmm. If I have my way, next time I go on book tour, he'll also be on book tour with me. I'll just drive around with him. Well, I know he's a wonderful dog. And uh, this is a wonderful story. It's called Say When. Elizabeth Berg wrote it. And this guy, you're in this guy's head. We're we're seeing his viewpoint uh, through most of this story. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're trying to interpret other people's feelings mm -hmm. and thoughts. But yeah, through all of it. Yeah, it's when his this point of view. When this guy initially goes into the separation phase, when when he's hit in the face with this big shock, like, mm -hmm. "Look, buddy, there's mm -hmm. a problem." Mm -hmm. From that point on, for for quite a a, a period, whenever he sees a woman. He almost automatically thinks about what it would be like to have sex with her now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, is yeah. this, was this hard for you to imagine this guy being this way, or do you think that's fairly common? I think um, in the same way that when women who are in relationships that are not satisfying to them see other men or they dream of other relationships, maybe they might think about sex sometimes, but I think that what they think about first and foremost is in, in emotional intimacy, whereas guys don't always put that first on the list. And I think that if if men are in a relationship or a marriage that isn't going so well and they're not having sex, then of course, that you know, they... they try to compensate if they find out, if their wife says, look, I want a divorce and they're crushed, at least they can try to make themselves feel better by thinking, well, you know, I don't need her. And anyway, I can, I'm a pretty good looking guy. I can probably get this one or this one. And I wonder what that would be like. The story is set in a suburb of Chicago, uh, Oak Park, an area that I know that you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And, and this is part, a big part of the story, isn't it? Because you, you've uh, come to love certain things about Oak Park. Now, is there mm -hmm. really a cozy corner? There's really a cozy corner. There's is, really a Mickey's. Is that cozy corner? Is that one of your hangouts? Yeah, I love the cozy corner. It's a coffee shop. You would love it, too. It's just full of characters, the white staff as well as the customers. And there's really a woman like this um, woman that runs this restaurant? Vicky. yeah. Uh, the woman's name is really Vicky. She's called Louise in the book. Um, and she's not exactly like Louise, but she that character Louise is inspired by Vicky. And I told Vicky that I had put a character in the book that was inspired by her named Louise. And she said, why didn't you call her Vicky? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a great place. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, community-owned public radio for curious listeners. And it's the best of the book nook revisiting an interview I did 19 years ago with Elizabeth Berg for her novel, Say When. And we'll continue with that conversation right after this. You're listening to the best of the book nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. Back in 2003, I did one of many interviews that I've done with the author Elizabeth Berg. I think I've talked to her eight or nine times over the years. But during the first 10 years that I hosted this program, we did a half a dozen interviews. And in 2003, she was on book tour for a novel called Say When. And when I think about Elizabeth, I think about someone who writes about relationships. She has a deep understanding of them and what can go wrong with them. And uh, we really got deep into the relationship subject during this conversation. Let's listen to some more now of my interview with Elizabeth Berg, recorded back in 2003. The book is Say When by Elizabeth Berg. We uh, have all this tension between this couple, and it's all about companionship. If I had to pick a theme for this book, I wouldn't say it was divorce. I would say companionship. We're all looking for companionship. Mm -hmm. And and what is companionship? Mm -hmm. What is sex? It's Mm -hmm. communication. Mm -hmm. It's it's, even if you're with someone and you're not speaking to each other, Mm -hmm. you're still communicating. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's not a question. It's just kind of a statement. Right, right. So companionship, that's what we're all looking for in in this life, aren't we? Yeah, I think so, to be known, to be seen. Otherwise, why be with someone? Yeah. Otherwise, you're just taking extra dishes out of the sink and putting them in the dishwasher. You know, I I think that what I would hope for in a relationship, apart from what what I just said, you know, being known, being seen, is is that... The other person helps make you better in some way, and you them, that you bring out the best in each other, that you work together toward having something better than you started out with. Um, for me, it's it's really important that I stay interested in a person, and I can only stay interested in them if they tell me stuff once in a while. If I If I never have a decent conversation with somebody, I don't know what's going on. There's a time in the book when Ellen, who's the wife, talks about a new relationship being like moving in a new house. And when you when you buy a new house or rent a new house or move to a new apartment, you're looking around at all the spaces in the new place and you're saying, this is, this is where I'll have tea in the morning and, oh, this will be a great place to read. Look at this chair. I'll put it by this window. And you do all this stuff. And then it ends up inevitably that you spend all of your time, you know, in two rooms of the house maybe. And she likens that to relationships. And I think it's true that you – you get into routines, and um, some of that's comforting, but some of it is deadening. And it seems to me to be critical to know when it's time to infuse the relationship with, a, you know, an awakening. You know, do something different, or make some sort of inquiry of your partner or a revelation about yourself that's a little surprising. So it's not this this deadening routine, and it's really hard when you have kids to do that. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a dance where uh, we're straddling the, the comfort zone and the dead zone, and, and we're trying to uh, have exciting lives and interesting lives, and we want to be comfortable. We want to have the sense of reliability in our relationships, but we also want excitement. Right, and we want to we want to be comfortable and not have to work, but a relationship is work. It's really a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth it, isn't it? I think it's worth it. Yeah. yeah, I do think it's worth it. I'm always heartened by, you know, there's so much divorce. There's so much quitting of people, you know, people giving up on each other. And and I think sometimes it's really necessary that people get divorced. But it's sad, too. And I'm always heartened when I see these people who have been together a long time. And you can see that they still are nuts about each other. It's just wonderful to see and when I've talked to people like that over and over they say that um, what's kept them together is is not so much you know the sparks and all that but that idea that you are committed to each other that you started out with a great love and you committed and that you are going to have hard times and you're going to have desert spells but you get through it and you commit together to get through it and I think if you don't have that in the beginning, if you're not really in love in the beginning, it's a really hard road later on because you don't have any kind of model to try to return to. Do you think it helps to be friends first? Or does that come yes, later? I, yeah. I, I do. Um, I, for myself, I need to have some romance at first, too. Mm. Maybe not everybody does, but I do. And then I, I think that romance kind of, you know, it, it can't last. That courtship phase simply cannot last. Mm. And then you move into the probably realer part of the relationship where you're more yourself, you know. And I mean, sometimes I put rollers in my hair, <laughs> and I'm walking around in front of Bill thinking, oh, God, this is a terrible sight for him to see, but I don't care, you know, <laughs> this is what it is now. But I love that I can be that comfortable with him. Um, and so, you know, you kind of trade one thing for the other. Um but again, that's where, you know, you have to, but you also still have to bother to to uh, look decent for each other sometimes or, or, as I said before, come up with a surprise. And even if the romance isn't as romantic as it once was, there are still flashes and mm-hmm. glimmers and, mm-hmm. and God forbid that you remind your uh, mate well, you haven't done this in a while, and then they do it, because that's not the yeah, same thing. Yeah, it doesn't thing. count. Right. right. It you, doesn't You count. haven't gotten me flowers. You haven't yeah. uh, done this. If I have to say it, then don't even bother doing it. Which is a theme in your book, right? <laughs> if I have to tell you, yeah, yeah. it doesn't count. Right? And, it's, and it's a theme in life. We um, have lots of people listening right now who are thinking about their own relationships as they hear what we're saying, they're reflecting on their own involvement with uh, whoever that special person might be. And people uh, often want something new. They want something exciting. They're bored. They're tired of the person that they're with. They, they want to be with something else. But on the other hand, that can be a really scary thing, being with somebody new, can't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Isn't it well, easier you know, to be in a sort of a flawed relationship that at least you're comfortable with? Well, I think... I think it depends. I think I think sometimes it's not that comfortable that you have to face the truth about 
where you are in a relationship. Um, I have to point again to saying that if if you're in a relationship that you were never excited about, really, it's going to be pretty hard to get excited about it 15 years down the road. If you're if you're nuts about somebody in the beginning and then love grinds to a halt, as my <laughs> friend John used to say, I, I don't think it really does grind to a halt. I think you I think you become used to each other. You you can get caught up in routines that that make you not see each other anymore. And you know this again is where it's work. Then it's up to you to to you know look at each other and say hello. Are you in there? You know what are you thinking lately? And and who are you lately? And let's go let's go do something together and and not talk about work and not talk about the kids and not talk about the dog and you know let's just let's just talk about what we're really thinking about. I think that's so vital and can save a lot in a relationship. And then there's how do you tell the kids? That's never an easy thing, uh, even when it's a trial separation. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you explain this to mm-hmm. a little girl? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so much brutality. I, I think about all the the harsh things that have been said by me, by other people in various situations mm-hmm. that really were hurtful. And I think of my own my own life. Um, my parents were married for 20 years, and, and my mother decided she wanted a divorce. Mm-hmm. And my father was kind of like this guy in the book. He wasn't aware that there was a problem. And we had a long driveway that went around behind the back of the house into the garage, so you couldn't see the garage. And when my mother finally made that decision, which was very difficult for her, my dad was still at work. We came home from school. My mom asked the older kids to take my dad's bed out and set it down right in front of the garage so that when he drove around the back of the house, he almost runs into his bed. Hmm. You know, it was like, here's here's the way the message was delivered. And I, wow. I think about that and I think... And she asked the kids to do that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. that's, woo, that's pretty hard. Well, she'd made up her mind. Yeah, but to ask the kids to do it puts them... Well, it was a big bed. She she couldn't I move know, herself. I know, but that's a, what if the kids aren't so in favor of that? Well, that's that's one of the biggest problems with divorce is is you know you have the kids um, being put in the middle. Put in the middle, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's that's being put on the mother's side, so you know if you well, well that's anyway, the, we that's won't we it, won't belabor that. Yeah, but I, I take works. your point. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, and I think that a couple of things about divorce and kids is that. I think kids know when there are problems, whether it's conscious or not. I do think they know. And um, so sometimes if there's been a lot of tension, it might be a relief for them in a way that it's out in the open and you're at least admitting this thing that they have sensed for a while. Um, That said, um, there is still regret and it doesn't ever stop divorce. Uh, in my, and I can speak from my own experience. When when we told our daughters that we were getting divorced, they weren't particularly surprised because we didn't fight. We were friends, but there was no passion, and they, they were well aware of that. And um, so that when we, we told them, we had them come in the living room and I began by saying there's something that we need to talk to you about, and, you know, we told them all about 
that we would be separating and how this would impact on them and, and that basically their lives day to day were not going to change because they were going to stay where they were living and so on and so on. And it was almost as though they were relieved. And I thought, wow, this is easy. But it wasn't easy because what happens is birthdays come and Thanksgiving comes and Christmas comes and memories just kind of trip you up sometimes. You think you're over it or you think you're not ambivalent, but in fact you are. And I, I don't know how you can go through a divorce and not have it, whether it's your idea or your mates. Both of you are in big pain, big mm. pain. And I'm interested always in how the one who leaves is seen as the bad person. And one of the points that, that Griffin makes in the book is that he comes to understand that it's not one bad person, that it's two bad people, that that the two people in the relationship that goes wrong both contribute toward it going wrong. It's not one person who's the good guy and another person who's the bad guy. My guest is Elizabeth Berg. You chose to speak from the man's perspective and um, there being no good guy or bad girl in this book uh, she's having an affair mm -hmm. and it's with a younger man mm -hmm. and i think one of the most amusing parts of the book was whenever griffin thinks about this guy he always comes up with a different kind of automotive term to mm -hmm. describe this guy mr crankshaft <laughs> <laughs> mr oil pan <laughs> i thought that was very cute <laughs> i had to look in a, a book about cars to find <laughs> let's talk about the turns. let's talk about the woman. Okay. What you can admit about okay. the woman without giving okay. away too much. Sure. Tell us about her. Well, she begins as a completely unsympathetic character because she's so seemingly cold um, in telling him, and she tells him right away. It doesn't give away anything to let you know that she confesses to an affair. She takes a class in auto mechanics, and she has an affair with her instructor. And she is so seemingly hard-hearted, both in her delivery of this news and the way she treats her husband afterward. She expects that he will move out. That's the way it's done. The, you know, somebody makes an announcement and the husband leaves, only he will not leave. Not only will he not leave, he won't talk about it. Simply not going to happen. That's all there is to it. He's not going to go along with this, so then it won't happen. And what happens is that eventually she does move out. And I think um, if what I hoped for is achieved, you come to understand that maybe she's not so horrible after all. Maybe she's got a case for some of the things that she's done. She also is a bit of a wreck of a person. She, You mentioned self-esteem early on. She she doesn't have any. She's mm -hmm. she's a very insecure person, really down on herself, doesn't understand her own worth at all, um, doesn't see that she has any worth except as a mother, can't see that she can do anything well except be a mother, and looks upon this auto mechanic as a white knight, as, as many women who are deeply insecure do. They're looking around for somebody to rescue them and to tell them that they have some worth. And she's not getting it from her husband, so she finds it in this guy. And then she finds out that it's not such a simple solution. And 
she's old fashioned. She just wants mm-hmm. to be home with her mm-hmm. daughter and her, her family and uh, bake cookies. Yeah. And yeah. she's made to feel really bad about that. Yeah. As a lot of women are. Uh, and I read an interesting article the other day about a stay-at-home dad who was at a party and was asked, what do you do? And when he said, I stay home with my children, the guy walked away from him. So he knows now what women endure. No status there, yeah. taking care of a house. That's right. What yeah. are you going to say then? Well, um, so what do you do all day? <laughs> you know, yeah. no, no topics of conversation, or so some people believe anyway. I saw a woman sitting in downtown Yellow Springs yesterday on a bench, and, and she had a baby on her lap, and she had a, a, a girl who was probably a year or two older than the baby, and they were both on her lap, and she was eating, and they were eating, and they were all together, and I almost said something to her. Then I thought, no, this is her life. She doesn't find anything unusual about this at all. She, she's juggling these kids and juggling these meals, and she's doing it all, and she's mm-hmm. superwoman, and, mm-hmm. and if I said anything, it would, it would really seem like a stupid thing to say. I don't know, Vic. What were you going to say? Something like, uh, wow, you know, you've got a lap full or, you know, some, I mean, she, she had yeah. two kids in her lap. They were eating. Well, they were... maybe she'd appreciate the acknowledgement. You never know. Well, it's kind of like. Um, it's all right. It's a judgment call. Darned if you do and darned if you don't. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, I always think twice. I, I was raised to open doors for people, particularly women. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you open a door for a woman, uh, it's not taken as a, as a I know. nice thing to do. I understand. Do. Yeah, yeah so. I know. I can do that myself. But um, I, I still believe, I always have believed, and I still believe that the most important job is creating people who can get along with other people and. It takes a lot of time to raise kids, and it takes a lot of presence. And I, I am amazed at parents who work both work full-time and are raising children. Besides, I think it's so hard because you have to give so much on all fronts. And I think the pendulum's going to have to swing back. Somebody's got to be around more often. It doesn't have to necessarily be the mother, although they do seem to be predisposed. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that. Well, we can only hope, Elizabeth. <laughs> You're listening to the best of the book nook on WYSO, revisiting an interview I did with Elizabeth Berg back in 2003, talking about her novel, Say When. And uh, we talked a lot about relationships, and uh, that's what she likes to write about. And we'll continue our conversation from 19 years ago with Elizabeth Berg right after this. The best of the book now continues on WYSO. Back in 2003, Elizabeth Berg was on book tour, and uh, she was a frequent guest on the program during the first 10 years that uh, I hosted the book nook. She'd write a novel about once a year and publish it, and uh, she would frequently come through Dayton on book tour. And that's why she came out here in 2003 to talk about her novel, Say When. Let's listen now to our final segment of the best of the book nook. Elizabeth, you uh, put out your first book 10 years ago. You've been very prolific, uh, 11 novels now and a couple of nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. For our listeners that aren't familiar with you, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Now, I've had you on the program many times. I never knew you used to be a singer in a rock band. Oh, yeah. I knew you were a nurse. (laughs) I've known other things about you, but I never knew you were in a rock band. Now, tell, tell us about that. 
Oh, I was, um, I loved um, singing, and I had a guitar, and I was teaching myself to play guitar, and I liked folk music. And I looked in the, I was a student at the University of Minnesota, I looked in the paper, there was an ad for a girl singer. So um, I went down and dutifully auditioned, and uh, got the job. And it was a great job. It was four nights a week at this club in Minneapolis called the Red Baron. Hmm. And the name of the band was the Blue Fox. And uh, they were actually really good musicians. They were very good. And I was the girl singer. So my job was to um, get up on the stage and sing. And I got an enormous amount of money at the time. This was 1968. I got 22 bucks a night. It was a fortune. A fortune, $88 a week. I remember buying a pair of Weijins, which I never could afford before. I was so thrilled. And um, it was great. I mean, I did it for a couple of years. As you mentioned, um, we had uh, Haven Kimmel on the program the other day, and she had some very glowing words for you. Uh, your name. We love each other. Your name came up. Apparently, she gives you a lot of credit for her career taking off. As well, she should. <laughs> um, I read a girl named Zippy, and I was nuts about it. And um, I, I, there's not a doubt in my mind. I should say, um, in all seriousness, that Haven Kimmel can do just fine without me, and would have done just fine without me. But what happened is, um, it maybe it went a little faster because um, the Today Show called me and asked me to recommend a book for their book club. And I'd been running around the country saying, "You got to read a girl named Zippy. This is just the best book." And so when the Today Show called, they said, "We would like you to pick a book, a nonfiction book, and preferably paper." back I said I know the book I just said it instantly and they said you don't want to think about it no I don't want to think about it I know the book it's a girl named Zippy so we met on the Today Show and uh, I'm just nuts about her I think she's she's a really interesting funny intelligent person and I loved that book as well as the others she's done and we've become you know email pals so Elizabeth Berg sells books, not just her own. Katie Couric obviously sells books. And someone else who used to really sell a lot of books, Oprah Winfrey. Ms. Winfrey, yes. Yeah, that was that was uh, my big break because she picked one of my books to be in her book club, Open House. And that, uh, that'll make a girl's sales go sky high. <laughs> my guess is Elizabeth Berg. Her book is Say When... When uh, I look back at, the, at your other books, I see a lot of books that really uh, resonated with women, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of your readers are female. Mm -hmm. Reading this book, I have to think you're going to have a lot more guys reading you. It will be very interesting to see because I've just begun the tour, as you probably know, and I've had interviews. I think you're the third guy now, and... Um, you know, they've said anyway that they really liked it. And one, one guy said, I couldn't put it down, which is really new for me to have a guy say that about, about my books. But I, I think that it can be read by a man and appreciated be, if for no other reason than it might give him pause. It might make him think a little bit about his own relationships. And I hope, too, that you know, he can enjoy, he, he can laugh at some of the funny things. 
Well, it's definitely a page turner, and I don't mean that, uh, that that's a term you hear a lot with, say, uh, the thriller genre, but uh, the book really moves, and uh, I like to talk a little bit about craft because you have such a way of, of economy when you write. I mean, you just, you move it along, you, you have funny little asides, and then you're right back into the, the tension or whatever it is that's happening. There's, there's like a strange little thing, just a little side view of something, and then boom, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're right back in the flow. What's, what's the process like for you? It's, you know, it's, it's mostly unconscious or subconscious, rather. Um, I, don't, I don't plot out my books. Um, I don't know how they're going to end. Um, I start out with an idea or a feeling, or in this case, as you know, this dream, and then I go to the computer and report for work every day and see what happens. And um, that way... And I've probably told you this before, that, that way I'm a, I'm a reader and a writer at the same time, and it keeps me interested. If I, if I know what's going to happen, I, I don't want to write it. I, wanna, I want it to be a mystery. I want things to be revealed to me through the process of writing. That's how I come to understand the world, really, is through writing and always was. What are you reading right now? I'm reading Augustine Burroughs' book, Dry, which I am really enjoying. I just finished, finally, I read Annie Prue's That Old Ace in the Hole, which I adored. And um, I just read a, a manuscript that I gave a blurb to called An Almost Perfect Moment. Binny, oh, I can't remember her last name. Kirstenberg, maybe? Anyway, An Almost Perfect Moment that will be out in the winter, I believe. How does the plug thing work? You get sent um, any given number of manuscripts or galleys uh, with a letter with an with an editor singing your praises because they want you to blurb the book, you know. So you skip over that paragraph, and then um, you can read it or not. Uh, and I always will give a manuscript a chance because when my first book came out. Um, Richard Bausch, Andre DeVuse, and Christopher Tillman all gave me blurbs, which I'm sure really helped. And uh, also, I love to discover great writings, so it's fun for me. Um, I won't read a whole manuscript if I'm not engaged by it, if I don't like it right away. Um, I'll give it maybe 20 or 30 pages, and if I'm not into it, it's not going to happen for me. Sometimes I don't have time. I, I get so many of them, and I'm... You know, like now, for example, I'm touring. I can't possibly read manuscripts now. But otherwise, I try always to just at least have a look. So if I like it, then I write a little blurb for it. And that was Elizabeth Berg, recorded back in 2003 on the best of the book nook. And uh, the novel that she had at the time was called Say When. And we talked a lot about relationships during that interview. And at the end there, she talked about blurbing, the whole blurb process and how she blurbs books. And blurbing uh, is an interesting art. I have blurbed a few myself, and you never know how your blurb is going to come out. Uh, Sometimes they'll chop it up a little bit, and uh, I guess that's their right to do that. But uh, sometimes you wonder when they come up with a really weird choppy blurb what they were thinking Anyway, it's just nice to have your name on a book and uh, not be the author, be the blurber. And 
I had a deeper relationship with Elizabeth Berg when we recorded that in 2003 because the previous year, something very interesting happened. I had just gotten done hosting the Excursions radio program, and I was in my office, and a phone call was transferred to me, and I answered it, and it was Elizabeth Berg. And I said, hi, Elizabeth. I, I said, what's up? Why are you calling me? She says, well, she says, I've got somebody I want you to meet. And I said, what do you mean? Are, are you here? Are you in town? And she says, yeah. She said, my friend Bill and I are driving back from New Orleans. We're on our way back to Chicago. And we took a detour over to Yellow Springs because we were hoping that we could get together with you and you could meet my friend Bill. And I said, oh, that's lovely. Sure. Let's, let's do that. So they were downtown and I went down and I met them. And we sat at a table in front of Current Cuisine and chatted, and she was with her friend Bill. And Elizabeth had gotten a divorce a few years before that, and Bill was her new relationship. And she said, I really wanted you to meet Bill because I know you have a lot in common. And it was true. And I have been friends with Bill ever since. I've spent a lot of time with him, and I've discovered a lot of things through Bill. We've gone to book conferences together. I have been to Chicago and, and stayed with, with Bill and Elizabeth in their home and enjoyed their hospitality. And we've had some adventures. And one thing I found out about Bill early on was he was a good friend of Studs Terkel, the oral historian, longtime uh, radio personality in Chicago, Pulitzer Prize winner for his book, The Good War. And he sort of acted like an agent for Studs. And so he said, how would you like to interview Studs? He's got a new book coming out. And I said, I would love that. I would absolutely love to interview Studs. It'll have to be on the phone, of course, since he'll be in Chicago. So Studs and I did an interview for his book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Studs was 89 years old at the time. And uh, he's got a, a birthday coming up on Monday, May 16th. He was born in 1912, so Studs would have been 110 years old. And I got to know Studs a little bit through my friend Bill. And as I mentioned, we had some adventures. One time in March of 2004, I was in Chicago, and I was getting ready to make a three-week-long trip to Lithuania. That is the country of my forebears on my father's side. My uh, grandparents were both born in Lithuania. They never spoke English. They moved to Chicago and lived there for over 50 years, and they learned fluent Polish, but they never learned English because no one in their neighborhood spoke English. They didn't need to know English. Anyway, I was in Chicago, and my friend Bill said, we have to pick up studs at the airport. And I said, okay, sure. He says, plane's coming in at 11 from New York. He's been at the uh, Book Critics Circle Awards banquet in New York City. And so we went out to the airport, and the plane shouldn't have been in yet. So we went over by the baggage carousel, and here was this very diminutive guy, not very tall, with bright red socks, talking to one of the red caps by the uh, luggage, and it was Studs. He had caught an earlier plane, 
and he'd been hanging around by the luggage carousel talking to people for the last hour and a half. He, he was in no hurry. He didn't have a cell phone. He just was hanging out waiting for us. So we picked him up and we drove him to his house and I sat in the back seat. I was the fly on the wall listening to them talk and Studs was talking about the banquet in that raspy voice of his and just, it was incredible to, to sit there and listen. And then we got to his house on the north side of Chicago and he said, well, you guys want to come in and have a drink? And we said, sure, Studs. And I was prepared for this because I had brought along a half a dozen copies of his books with me. I knew that I might encounter studs in Chicago. And so we went inside, and it was probably about noon. And we went in his kitchen, and studs said, Wow, he's got to make you a martini. And we said, Sure. He said, It'll have to be vodka. He says, I drank up all the gin. Ha ha. And so he made us martinis. And I looked at his decor in his house, and it was just amazing, the things he had in his house. Pretty hard to describe, but lots and lots of books and memorabilia and photos, photos of studs with unbelievable people. I mean, you'd look at the photo, and you go, are you really with Bertrand Russell in that photo? Pretty amazing. Is that really Bob Dylan with you? Anyway, studs knew everybody, and he very graciously signed all of my books. And we took some photos, and it was just wonderful. And then some years later, when I was on the board of the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, the, the prize had just been created. They had not given out any awards. And I made a suggestion that maybe they should have a Lifetime Achievement Award. And that would give them some buzz. And maybe we should give it to Studs Terkel. And that's what we did. He came into town and he received the Dayton Literary Peace Prize for Lifetime Achievement. And he gave a speech. And my job that day, after we picked him up at the airport, was to keep him awake. And so I spent the afternoon in his suite at the Dayton Marriott talking to studs while he watched the Chicago Bears game on TV. And he rehearsed his speech. He had no notes. And he occasionally would ask me a question. He started asking me what I thought about the congressional races that were happening in Ohio. It was right before the election. He knew every single congressional candidate by name. His mind was that sharp. And then that evening, I introduced Studs before his speech. I was up there in my tuxedo. And I introduced him, and what a memory that was. He had told me, he said, this speech is going to be my valedictory. And as far as I know, that was his final speech before he died. He was quite frail at the time. What an amazing man, an amazing mind, a brilliant, brilliant man. And I miss him. Of course, he'd be 110 years old this coming Monday if he was still with us. He lived to be 96 Studs Turkle did. And I remember being in Chicago with him and telling him I was going to go to Lithuania. And he was intrigued by that. And he started talking about all the ethnic nicknames in Chicago and how this nickname came from this and that nickname came from that. And he said, 
you, you know the nickname Honky? And, and I said, yeah, I've heard that one. He says, well, you know what that originally came from? And I said, no, I don't, studs. He says, that was what they called Hungarians. They were the honkies. He said, then it became more widespread and it became more of a generic term for Caucasian people. He said, but originally it was Hungarians. And I said, well, I didn't know that, studs. That's fascinating. He says, and you're Lithuanian. He says, that makes you a, a litwack. And I was like, okay, you know, this is all very Chicago. Well, tomorrow I've dusted off my interview with Studs Terkel. We're going to run it on the best of the book nook tomorrow morning at 1030. Will the circle be unbroken? My interview that I did with Studs when he was 89 and still sharp as a tack. We're going to run that as we celebrate what would have been his 110th birthday and honor him. He was born on May 16th, 1912. He called himself a Titanic baby because that was the year the Titanic sunk in 1912. And one amazing guy, as we were waiting for him to go on stage and give his speech to receive the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, he started talking about all the people that he had shook hands with and how if this person was shaking hands with him and that person many years before had shook hands with another famous person, then in a way he was kind of shaking hands with that other person and you would not believe the list of people that, that he had compiled in his mind where he had made this connection between, well, you know, Bertrand Russell shook hands with the whoever, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> like, Okay, studs. So uh, what a fascinating man. And uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow morning at 1030 for the best of the book nook as I dust off that interview with Stud Circle for Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And he was so sharp, so intense, and uh, just such a wonderful raconteur. You didn't have any trouble getting the man to speak. He always had something to say. For the best of the book nook, I'm Vic McCunis, and thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs>